I used to drink coffee with an old guy who had been in the Navy. In fact, he had been stationed on a battleship, and he had a lot of stories, and, and uh, he loved to tell those stories. I heard those stories a lot. In fact, I, I heard pretty much every story more than once, but that was okay because he liked to tell them, and, and I liked to listen. Remember, one of the stories he was telling was about how they'd get new guys on the ship, and they'd have to kind of haze them. You know, they'd have to make them go through an initiation, and one of the ways they would initiate the new guys is they would send them to do jobs that were impossible to do. And uh, he had one, one, one fellow who they sent to get a glass magnet. Does anyone here own a glass magnet? No, there's no such thing as a glass magnet. But they'd tell this guy, we need the glass magnet. And he'd, he'd say, I'll go get it. And he'll take, he'd take off. And they wouldn't see him for a long, long time. He was busy looking for that glass magnet. Or they'd tell him, we need a left-handed screwdriver. And he'd I'll, I'll go get the left-handed screwdriver. He'd take off. Finally, this friend of mine, he, he talked to the guy, he said, you know, you realize that they're just sending you on, on worthless tasks. You can't find those things. And he said, I know. I'm not stupid. Every time they send me on one of those jobs, I go back to the bunk and I take a nap. You know, he, he had that figured out. He, we call those fool's errands. And it seems like every line of work has a, has a fool's errand. We were discussing fool's errands the other day. Jim Vale was telling me that among mechanics, you ask someone to go get the muffler bearings. Uh, oh, you need muffler bearings. We've got to get the muffler bearings. When I worked for the lumber yard, we would send the new guys out back to get the 2x4 stretcher. Because uh, the 2x4 is real short. We need a 2x4 stretcher. We'd say, Everybody's got a, a fool's errand that they do. And at, the point is that it, it sounds legitimate. It sounds real. But the reality is it's a waste of time. The reality is it's worthless. It gets you nowhere. Nothing gets done. And at the very best, you could use that time to take a nap. But at worst, you'll realize you've spent your life running after something that doesn't matter. And that's something that I try to be very sensitive about when it comes to what we do here together. I don't want you to feel in any way that what we do or that your faith is, is a waste of time. And I'm mindful of that in the time I put into preparing for sermons. We are mindful of that in the way that we plan our worship. We're mindful of that in the way we give you something to focus on, like gather, grow, serve. We try to keep it simple. We try to keep it pointed and, and make sure you know exactly what we're here to do. Faith should not be some fool's errand that just keeps you busy until you die. More than anything, it should be about a relationship that grows and, and transforms, a relationship that fulfills your life. And so the passage we're looking at in Colossians chapter 2, the very end of Colossians chapter 2 today, I had to admit, this passage is a little confusing. It's a little muddy. It uses words that we're not used to using and, and uh, some words that are a little bit confusing to us. But at the heart of it all is the question of what are we focusing on? Where is our energy going? Where is our attention going? What is central to our lives and to the life of our church? And Paul is explaining to the Colossians that there are a lot of things that look good that we could do. There are a lot of things that sound important, but in the end, they are fool's errands. And I think we have to take a close look at what we're doing in, in light of this passage and ask ourselves, is Jesus truly the focus of what we do here? Is, is Jesus truly the focus of our church? We're going to be in, like I say, Colossians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 16 through 23. If you're using the Bibles in the pew, I think it's page 984. Now, to truly get at this passage, 
I have to give you a little background. There were, there were two problems plaguing the church in Colossae. There were two different groups pulling at the church in Colossae. One group was over here, and we'll call them the legalists. Now, the legalists believed that you had to go back to the law of Moses and, and you had to keep the law perfectly. And if you failed to keep even one little part of the law, if you failed to keep these regulations or that regulations, that you were not truly saved. Now, Jesus came, and in Matthew chapter 15, it's Matthew 15, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish, or five, chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets or destroy the law and the prophets. I tell you the truth, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. So keeping the law perfectly is impossible for us. It's only possible for Christ. So the legalists were over here on one side telling people, you've got to do this or you've got to do that or you're not saved. And then over here on the other side were people that we're going to call spiritualists. Or maybe we call them experientialists. And they insisted that you had to have this spiritual experience. You had to have had this amazing experience in order for faith to be real. And, and they were telling people, you need to worship angels. You need to, to be worshiping angels. Or you need to have this vision. And if you don't have this vision, then it obviously means that you're not pure enough you, you are too fleshly and you need to actually even abuse your body and deny yourself all of these things that you want, like donuts and stuff. The, the, the word that's going to be used is asceticism. And it's that idea that we're just going to, we're going to do away with the flesh. You know, we're, going to, we're not going to feed the flesh. And they, they said, if you've not had these experiences, you have to devote yourself to asceticism and to, to living a life separate until you are finally holy enough that God will give you this vision. Both sides made the average Christian feel small. Both sides made the average Christian feel like, like they weren't good enough, and, they, and ultimately they made them feel like they were lost. Both sides took their focus off of Jesus and persuaded other people to do the same. So what does Paul have to say to these legalists and these experientialists on the other side. Well, verse 16, he says, therefore, okay, wait, hold on. <laughs> he said, therefore, that's the magic word. If you see the word therefore, you have to go back and see what it's therefore. See, you guys are catching on. You're catching up on this. We need to understand what that word therefore is tied to. And if you went back just a few verses into chapter 2, you find that one command that we have here where he says, he also says, therefore, there as well. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. That is a command. This is something you commit to doing, to walking in Christ. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The command is to walk in Him. To be rooted in Christ. To, to find your identity in Christ. And he says it is a completed fact. And so now what he's saying is since you're already doing that, since you're already walking in Christ, since you find your identity in Christ, now what? He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. In question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are shadows of the things to come. But the substance, I love this, the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. 
insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. People were judging others on whether or not they kept this law or that. You're eating unclean food, which Jesus already said was okay. So bacon, it's on the menu. It's great. Shrimp, on the menu. You're fine. Shrimp wrapped in bacon, even better. You know, that's perfect. So, but they're saying you're unclean because you're not following these dietary laws or you're not celebrating these feasts. And then on the other side, there are people saying, well, you're disqualified because you've not had this experience or, or that experience. And, and it's very tempting for you and me to just read stuff like that and laugh and say, oh, those primitives. They were so silly. The things that they believed and the, the things that they got hung up on, how ridiculous is this? But the reality of it was that the issue was the question, is Jesus enough? That's at the heart of the issue. Is Jesus enough or do I need to do more? I've been asked that question by little kids who want to get baptized and want to give their lives to Jesus. Is, is, is this enough? Will this get me to heaven? I've been asked that question by men on their deathbeds. Have I done enough? Can I be sure that I've done enough? It, it plagues our lives. Have I done enough to earn my salvation? And when loving Jesus becomes a list of things that we must do, there's always going to be one more thing. Grace erases that list and it brings us back to Jesus alone. When our focus is on Jesus, then Jesus is always enough. Now that means that every now and then we, we kind of need to take an assessment of what we're doing here and, and what, we're, what we're saying here and ask the question, is Jesus truly central to who we are as a church? I've had people ask me before, what does this church believe? <laughs> people have asked me that. What, what does this church believe? And I give them this answer. I, we believe two things. We believe we ought to love Jesus and we ought to love other people. That sounds reasonable, right? I mean, am I okay with you? You guys okay with that? Let's take a vote. Love Jesus? Yeah, okay, great. Love other people? Ooh, not as many. No, we're going to be fine. But it, it, sometimes it's not enough for people. As someone say, well, would you let that kind of person in your church? Yes. We're going to love people. It, we're not going to tell them, you get yourself cleaned up and then come here. You know, we, we're going to love them wherever they are. It's not always the answer people want. And someone asked me, what do you believe about salvation? Well, I'm in favor of it. What do you believe about, <laughs> what do you believe about this? What do you believe about the end times? What do you believe about spiritual gifts? What do you believe about speaking in tongues? And I have opinions about all of those things, but none of those opinions save me. And if you want to talk about opinions, we can talk about opinions, but I know that you've probably got different opinions than I do, and that's okay, because we're going to agree on Jesus, right? We're going to start there, we're going to love Jesus, and we're going to love other people, and we're going to keep our opinions on the back side. We're not going to worry about our opinions, we're just going to do those things. I got, I got grilled by a guy one day, I got grilled by this guy, he was asking me about communion. He says, does your church take communion? I said, yeah, we take communion every Sunday. We think it's an important thing to do. We, we come to the table. We take communion. That wasn't good enough. He said, how do you take communion? So what do you mean? He said, do you have little bitty pieces of bread? And do you have little bitty cups? I said, yeah, we have individual cups and individual pieces of bread. So we don't want to make each other sick. It's all good. He said, well, you're doing it wrong. 
The Bible says you have to have one, one loaf of bread and one cup. Really? The Bible says we have to. That's the example. That's the, that's the example that we're binded to, uh, bound to. That's, that's the example. You have no authorization to use those little cups, those little pieces of bread. I said, what if we had a really big church? What if we were numbered in the thousands? How big of an oven would we need to bake that one loaf of bread? I mean, it's going to get pretty big. And he said, that's the point. That's why churches shouldn't be big. You should never have a church that's bigger than what your loaf of bread can take care of. (laughs) You realize he was sacrificing the effectiveness and the growth of his church and ours... (laughs) based on his opinion. Not on biblical truth, based on his opinion. He was saying, we can't grow bigger. We've we got to get a bigger oven, you know, or, or we can't grow. I think, oh, that's great. Had, an, had another guy one time ask me about baptism. And he wanted to know how we baptize. I said, you know, we baptize by immersion. In the Bible, the word baptize means to immerse. We think it's important, so we baptize by immersion. He said, yeah, but what words do you say? I said, well, I go with Matthew 28 usually. I baptize, you know, Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I thought, that's good enough for Jesus. It's good enough for me. So when I baptize, I say, baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dunk them. Get them back up. He said, no. He said, Acts chapter 19, verse 5 says, baptize them in the name of Jesus. And I said, well, Jesus is the Son. He's right there in the middle. Of, no, it's not good enough. Acts chapter 19, verse 5 supersedes what Jesus says. That's dangerous. <laughs> in Matthew 28. And I said, I, you know, I don't agree. He said, let me ask you a question. Will you, will you call up all the people that you've baptized and tell them that you did it wrong and that you need to baptize them again? And he's like, well, some of them are dead. <laughs> so it's going to be hard for me to do that. Uh, but I, I suppose, no, I'm not going to do that at all. And you know, we laugh about stuff like that. But, but those are issues, I mean, it's goofy, but churches have divided over those issues. Christians have divided over those issues. Now, churches that have divided over those issues, do you, th- you know, we're just going to kind of suppose here, do you think they're known for loving Jesus and loving others? They're known for what they don't do. They're known for who they don't love. I can't tell you how many times I've heard in the last two months. I've had friends of mine who have told me that people are leaving their church because they found out that some people in their church voted a way that they didn't vote. And they said, I can't go to church there anymore because some people there voted a way I didn't vote. A friend of mine not far from here, a friend of mine I saw yesterday, he had a lady leave his church and she actually said, I can't take communion with people who voted that way. Is Jesus the focus when you do that? You know, Danny and I were talking. Danny, Danny knows all about the Civil War. I think he lived through part of it. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, during the Civil War, the real Civil War, sometimes the North and the South would stop fighting on a Sunday and they'd all go to church together. They'd take communion together and then They'd wait till Monday to, you know, blow each other up again, <laughs> I guess. But they, they, they came together and they, they worshiped together. And you're telling me you can't worship with someone who voted different? You know, how far are you taking that? Well, 
They like Coke. I like Pepsi. I'm not going to go to church with them. They're the taste great side. I'm the less filling side. I'm not going to church with them. Where's the focus? Is the focus on Jesus? Verse 16, he, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. And this is hard to do in the English language, but that's a plural you. Let no one pass judgment on y'all, is what he's saying. He's talking about the whole church. Let no one pass judgment on, on you all in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. There are a lot of rules out there. There are a lot of rules in here, we've got to be honest. There's a lot of very good things that we do, but none of them will get you to heaven, and no one has the right to judge your salvation by those rules. There's a Scripture you ought to keep in your mind, keep it in your back pocket, I don't care. Write it on your fridge, put it on Facebook, wherever you put these things. Romans chapter 14, verses 17 and 18. Listen to this. Romans 14, 17 and 18. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Is that plain enough? We don't judge by those externals. We don't judge people by those things. Whoever does this is... is, um, he says, whoever thus serves God is, is accept, or Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That ought to be enough. Because people, don't, people don't need us to make them feel inadequate. Chances are they, they feel inadequate enough on their own. They need us to show them that, that Jesus is their adequacy, that Jesus is all that they need. Verse 17 says that Jesus is the substance. I love that. They need us to show them that Jesus is the substance. I hope we get that as a church. I really do, but I hope we also understand it as individuals also because we desperately need to know that Jesus is central to our own lives as well. I said this earlier, two dangers in the Colossian church. There were the legalists, the rule keepers, and there were the spiritualists, the experience seekers. Both of them were wrong. Both ideas were a way of saying, Jesus isn't enough. You need something else. They were also a way of saying there is a class system in faith, and if you're not as good as me, or if you've not experienced the things that I've experienced, then you're not as good or as saved as I am. And both extremes took the focus away from Jesus. Paul gets, gets a little more personal in verse 18. He says, let no one disqualify you. It, another way of putting it would be, let no one act as umpire in your life. Nobody looks at you and say, you, you're out, you, safe. You know, no, no one is going to be umpire in your life. There were those in, Coloss- in Colossae, there were those in Colossae who were worshiping angels. They, they actually had this, this angel worship cult that started. And you know, angels, even, even if you can't see them, they're still created beings. So to worship a created being is still idolatry, right? You shouldn't do that. And, and I know, you know, again, we can laugh and say those primitive Christians, you know, that. People 2,000 years ago were so ignorant. I can take you to a church not far from here <laughs> where I attended a, a meeting one night and this was, this was a long time ago. They were going to sell me some tapes, some cassette tapes. We don't have those anymore. but They were going to sell me a cassette tape series on how to, how to talk to my angel and how to learn my angel's name so I could communicate with my angel and, and I would be more spiritual. How is that different than what the, the Colossians were, were putting up with there? It is so wrong. that you know, 
more to the point, it's a way of saying your spiritual experience isn't as good as mine. And when I say your spiritual experience isn't as good as mine, that comes with suspicion. That comes with suspicion of sin on your part. You're not good enough. You're disqualified. You're out of here. And that's wrong. Don't, don't let people do that to you. Don't, and don't do that to other people. We have no right to sit in judgment of someone when Jesus hung in grace for them. We have no right to do that. Verse 18 says of those people, he says, they are puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. There is no depth. There is just that desire for experience, for what they can feel. Don't be like that. And then he gets at the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem isn't about legalism, and it's not about the angels. It's about what these people lack. He says in in verse 19, he says that they are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. They're not connected to the head. Now, who's the head? Jesus, right? Who's the body? We're the body. We are the, the called out. We are the body. Look at the descriptions he uses. He says when we're connected to the head, when we're connected to the body, we are nourished, we are built up, uh, we are knit together, we grow with a growth that is from God. All I can tell you is what I'm reading here in the Bible. All I can tell you is what I see in the Word of God. And what that tells me is real growth does not take place disconnected from the body. Real growth does not take place disconnected from the Christ's body, the church, and it doesn't take place disconnected from the head. It's about what we do together. It doesn't take place if you connect yourself to an experience or to legalism rather than Jesus. Verse 20, he says, if with Christ you died, I feel like I'm giving grammar lessons again here, Nancy, but this is kind of a fun thing. He, he, he phrases it as an argument. He, he's, he's getting in their face a little bit. The, the, the actual phrase ought to be, you died with Christ, right? That's how you ought to read that. You died with Christ, right? I mean, I mean you, you accepted Him as Lord. You, you committed your life to Him. You, you gave your life in baptism. You're buried with Him. You, you rose in new life. You did all that. You did all that, right? And, and the response is, yeah, yeah, we, we did all that. Well, okay, well, uh, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, then why, as if you were still alive to this world, do you submit to their regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And by this, I'm referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of women promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And you're sitting there and you go, what? <laughs> it's a lot to take in, isn't it? It's a lot to take in in those few verses. What he's saying is this, what's central to your life? Is it keeping the rules? Is it these experiences? Are they the surface things? Because all of these surface things, they can't get to the heart of your need. They have the appearance of doing that, but they can't get to the heart of your need. At the heart of your need, you will find Jesus. Now, we can't really look at this passage without actually looking ahead just a couple of verses into chapter 3, and we're going to jump into chapter 3 next week. But he says there in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, if then you have been raised with Christ, there's an if clause, just like we've had already with the therefores. Since this is true about you, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. All those rules that we're supposed to keep. (laughs) That day when you're lying on your deathbed, none of those rules are going to show up and say, well done, good and faithful servant. None of those rules are going to show up and, and take you to heaven. None of them will promise you eternal life. So, so why make them your hope? Why turn them into your hope? Put your hope in Jesus. I love the, the servants we have in this church. We have a lot of people here who serve very, very well. They do a lot of wonderful, wonderful things. And I got to say, I love the examples of the, the godly men and the women. I, I posted a video on, on uh, Facebook a couple days ago of some of our senior saints that we've had over the years. And it's just been amazing to me to see some of those people, who, who, those godly men and women who have been amazing examples. And I wouldn't be here. I would not be here today if it weren't for many of them. But none of them would tell you that they've earned their salvation. None of them will tell you that they earned their right to sit at the table with Jesus. None of them went to their graves or or will go to their graves with the question, did I do enough? Because every one of them is so in love with Jesus that they they can't take their hope off of him. So if you're here today and you're wondering, what does this church believe? (laughs) Love Jesus. Love each other. Love other people. We're going to do that, okay? We're just going to do that. We're not going to tell you about that. I mean, we'll tell you. But we'd rather show you. We'd rather show you that we love Jesus and we love other people. We'd rather show you by loving you, by caring for you. We will show you by giving you opportunities to love others as well. Giving you opportunities to love Jesus. We won't judge you. We won't stand around and umpire your life and say, you're out. You're safe. We want to show you the kind of grace that Jesus has showed us. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we know that there are times when we've distracted ourselves with fool's errands. We've run off in a lot of different directions. One direction or another, trying to find something we can do to to prove our worth to you. And in the end, we wore ourselves out on meaningless work. But we come back to you and your son, and we realize that he is all we've ever needed. Help us to trust him more completely. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that needs to know your grace, we want to show it to them. If they're here today and they felt judged or disqualified, let us show them the love that you showed us. Let us show them your amazing grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.